0: Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming today. As Jonathan explained, I'm an economist. I've been at this university for nine years now, uh, mainly working on issues to do with international labour migration. Uh, Most of my research is on the economics and politics of of labour immigration policy in different countries. But I've been doing a lot of work uh, with um, British government, uh, but also uh, governments in, in other countries. So it's a mix of academic research and applied policy research. Now, as with all the other sessions today, the purpose of this talk is to, um, on the one hand, give you a brief introduction and overview to the growing economics portfolio at this department, but I want to do that in the context of the ongoing debate about where economics is headed. Now, obviously, um, the big uh, picture starting point is the current economic Downturn, the financial crisis, and um, I'd like to start. I know the jubilee uh, presentations are almost over, but I'll still start with the Queen. Uh, the Queen uh, visited uh, the London School of Economics, um, which has one of the premier economics departments um, in this country, in late November 2008, and um, um, she was there to listen to a lecture uh, by some eminent economists about um, the crisis and. Uh, during the question-and-answer session, she asked, well, why didn't anybody see that coming? So she asked a question that that many of us, of course, were wondering about. (coughs) I mean, given that we have been hearing for years from macroeconomists, uh, we have very fancy mathematical models, a lot of work has gone into studying the economy, a lot of work on macroeconomy, why did nobody predict the scale um, of the crisis that we uh, eventually experienced. Of course there were many economists who did um, warn against um, uh, crisis-like situations, but I think it's fair to say that nobody's predicted the scale of it. So on the one hand you've got a very confident discipline, on the other hand you've got uh, something happening that's in the real world that the confident discipline really failed to predict. Now what this has led to is, well at least among some quarters, is some soul-searching within the economics discipline about the appropriateness of tools and methods to studying what 's going on in the real world, so uh, The Economist uh, ran a number of issues uh, dedicated uh, to the economics of the crisis, uh, you know where it went wrong and how the crisis is changing it. Um, now for some time, of course, there have been people criticizing mainstream economics now i'll just give you three three quotes here. the first one is from uh, Uh, one of the most um, uh, well-known defences of mainstream economics, uh, published in the late 1990s by a very uh, well-known macroeconomist in the States, who wrote a big piece uh, called Economic Imperialism, uh, and the piece basically started saying that economics is the superior science within the social sciences. Why? Because economics is almost like a genuine science, and um, ironically now somewhat the the success of economics, he says, derives from its rigor and relevance, as well as from its generality. Now, of course, since the crisis and before, we've had critics, some arguing that, well, real economics is is, is not suited at all to what's going on in the real world. got a second quote here. And some others are somewhere in the middle, and economists will probably be there, saying, yes, there are things wrong with economics, uh, but it's it's wrong to uh, support a wholesale backlash against the discipline. Um, and one should be more sophisticated about uh, uh, thinking about w- what, what needs to be done in the future. So what I d- want to do in the 15 or 20 minutes that I have today is briefly um, talk about some of the main facets of, of mainstream economics as you would uh, be taught the subject at, at most major universities and then I want to talk about some critiques and then say, you know, so what's the, w- the way forward? Um, in the context of what's happening at this department as well. And I want to make the case that um, the way forward is not to, to, to rubbish the whole discipline. I'm a trained economist. I'm not going to stand up and say it's all rubbish and we should uh, completely abandon all of it. But the way forward is to, uh, to combine different disciplines, in particular economics and politics, to take a multidisciplinary approach that, that appreciates the insights of each discipline, limitations of each discipline, but at the same time is, is well-grounded and what each discipline on its own ha- ha- has to offer. At the end, I'll, I'll briefly talk about um, the economic portfolio here, and we'll have a Q&A session afterwards where we can have general questions. So let's start with uh, uh, what people refer to as mainstream economics. Um, uh, if you study economics uh, um, at, at, you know, uh, at most um, economic departments, you, you're highly likely to be uh, studying uh, economics using this textbook. as Gregory mankiv who is... Um, at Harvard University. Uh, it's marketed as the most popular and widely used text in economics. I suppose most textbooks have that line, but anyway, I think this is probably one of the most heavily used. And um, he was uh, also um, politically engaged. He was advising uh, President Bush and also Mitt, Mitt, uh, chief advisor, economic advisor to Mitt, to Mitt Romney. Um, so, what you can do is uh, you can go, and you can Google search Greg Mankive Economics and you, you can get his textbook online. You can get slides online. So, what I'm going to sh- show you now is just give you a few slides that give you an indication of how economics is introduced to people nowadays and what economics is supposed to be about. These slides are straight take, uh, taken straight from the textbook. So what is economics? Well, it's this is the study of how society allocates scarce resources. So the idea is that resources are limited and there's an allocation problem. If it was possible to get everything uh, we want, then a lot of the issues would, would go away. So there are questions like what goods and how many of them should we produce? You know, a country like Britain, uh, what types of activities should Britain engage in? Should it you know, promote uh, labour-intensive activities? Should it promote high-tech activities? Uh, what resources should be used in production? Most things can be produced using different technologies. That means different inputs of capital and labour. Agriculture, you know, um, I've just come back from, from a farm in, in Reading where we looked at um, migrant workers in agriculture. There's a big question. Should you mechanize? Can you mechanize the production? Or should you use uh, the available labor? And finally, how should the output be distributed? Economics is a lot about how people make decisions, and um, most economists engaging in public policy um, would, would continuously emphasize the idea of trade-offs. In a way that things uh, are negatively correlated, so you cannot have—you might want um, uh, low inflation and low unemployment—and some economists would say, well, there might be a negative correlation between those two. There might be a trade-off. If you have, you know, more of one good thing, you have less of the other good thing. So economists like to talk about trade-offs, and as a consequence, about choices that need to be made. Um, it's about how people interact with each other. Uh, note that in this book, Mankiv, trade can make everybody better off. Again, mainstream economics very much based on free market economics. The default, in a way, is that trade, free trade is a good thing. As I'll say a little bit later, of course, there's also literature that challenges this assumption. Um, and that markets, of course, are one way of organizing economic activity. Um, <coughs> Most mainstream introductions to economics would make quite a strict distinction in a way between what's called positive economics and normative analysis. And I think at at one level that distinction is very useful to keep in mind. So positive questions are questions about the real world as it is. So for example, what is the impact of um, interest rates on inflation? What is the impact of immigration on unemployment? So it's a cause and effect question. Um, that's a positive question. A normative question would be you know, what should we do about um, uh, the global financial crisis? What should we do about immigration? So should questions are a normative question. Most economists like to you know, keep these questions separate. Again one of the critiques obviously is that there's only a limit to which you can actually keep these two issues separate because many of the assumptions that go into some of the positive analysis, for example that Marxists. Markets are, on average, delivering efficient outcomes, have, of course, a strong normative uh, dimension. Um, Now, economists like to think that uh, it's um, a very objective type of exercise, and, of course, it makes use of the scientific method. So what's the scientific method? Well, you use models and theory to generate hypotheses. And then you go out in the real world, you do some analysis, you get some data, and you try to test these hypotheses. And you can either accept them or or reject them. So those models, those abstract models that are used, can easily be ridiculed because um, any model that you will see makes a number of assumptions, and most of these assumptions will not be met in the real world. But of course the precise point of assumptions is to simplify the real world. If you want to understand how the world works, Uh, you've got to simplify things. So the idea is you make an assumption, do your analysis, you have a result, and later you see how the result changes as you change an assumption. Uh, So economists make assumptions, and uh, obviously different assumptions will lead to different results. Abstraction from reality, and um, the emphasis is on generating hypotheses and on empirical testing. Econometrics, most economics courses... Uh, in the world, economics departments will teach you three things at least, which is microeconomics, the way how individuals and firms interact, macroeconomics, the way how the economy works at the aggregate level, and econometrics, which is about statistical analysis of data. So these three things are typically core subjects. Uh, So I'll just give you one example of how models might work in the field that I'm most familiar with, which is immigration. So the question is (coughs) how does immigration impact on wages? Okay, so this is the most popular model that's used. Um, So what are the assumptions? First of all, in this economy, there's only one product being produced, one output, only one product. There's two inputs, capital and labor. There's a fixed production technology. That means that the way capital and labor combine to produce the output is fixed. So imagine three people to one machine produce T-shirts. All the capital is owned by workers in the host country, by people in the host country, and workers are perfect substitutes. That means migrants who come in are exactly the same as domestic workers. Question is, what's the impact of immigration wages, national income and distribution? Now, I'm not trying to explain the details of the model, I'm just going to give you a flavor of how these things work. So what you do is you draw, you have a diagram, you make assumptions about labor demand, labor supply. You say immigration increases the labor supply in the country, which means some curves shift to the right, Immigration therefore lowers the wage uh, and it might also increase demand uh, which might again which may raise the wage. So I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all in this model the assumption is being made that there's no unemployment. All right. So the, the most simple and basic model that's most commonly used uh, in explaining the effects of immigration, Assumes away any problem of unemployment. Immigration cannot cause unemployment in this model. It's been assumed away. All effects are on wages. Okay. Secondly, there's a big question about whether what, what curves, what happens in the model. And there's big disagreement to what extent immigration increases labor supply only, or whether it also increases demand. Completely different outcomes. If you think that immigration increases supply, <coughs> you, you would expect lower wages. If you think it also affects demand, you would expect higher, possibly higher wages in the end. So again, the assumptions you make um, are very important in driving some of the results. So then you do empirical analysis. Remember I was talking about economic models. You have a theory, you generate a hypothesis, then you do some testing. So the British government recently uh, was very interested in whether immigration causes um, unemployment among graduates uh, in the UK. Um, uh, The government committee that I worked for, we did some analysis, we didn't find very much. So this basically, this is a simple graph that shows you, well, there there isn't much of a relationship. Uh, this is what a typical result of an econometric exercise looks like So, you know, it's quite sophisticated tools Different models there's, there's five different ways in which you estimate these effects They all give you slightly different answers They all make assumptions what you include or exclude If you change one assumption a little bit Some of these results change quite drastically <coughs> So this is why it's really important uh, Whenever you see you know, any sort of empirical analysis that, that, that one asks critically about how these results were generated <coughs> Okay, so, some, so this is, I think this is, obviously I've gone over it very quickly, but this is how some of the uh, typical um, uh, economic analysis that you see coming out of mainstream economics operates. Now, uh, as I realized uh, last night, as I was putting these slides together, there's even more jokes on the Internet about economists than there's <laughs> jokes for uh, men preparing best man speeches. Um, but the, uh, so it's easy to make fun of economics, right? Uh, it's easy to make fun of it. Um, Greg Mankiv um, experienced um, um, in, 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 I think this was in 2011, so this is Greg Mankiv who, who wrote in this book and he teaches 700 undergraduates at, at Harvard and they walk out. It's never happened before. Uh, you can watch the video on YouTube. Very interesting. So they protested and wrote an open letter to Greg Mankiv complaining about the uh, state of economics saying, well, you know, the kind of economics that, that we're being taught doesn't really uh, explain the real world and that, that we think is a problem. So again, you can find that on the internet and it's also on YouTube. Now, here are some critiques and this is a personal and, and incomplete selection. Uh, I'm not here to give um, a, a comprehensive critique of the discipline but I mean some of the issues I've mentioned already. Obviously, on the one hand, there's a, there's a failure to explain some very big things that are happening in the real world, and for any for any subject really, that is uh, that is a problem. Uh, there is what different people you could describe the methods mafia, but there is um, now a lot of pressure in most uh, economics departments uh, to to be proficient in a fairly narrowly defined set of of methods, uh, which in mo- mostly involves heavy use of uh, mathematics and statistics, and um, therefore. Uh, partly as a response to that, you get very narrow and deep specializations. So you have people uh, who do PhDs and then who become well-known economists who who specialize in very, very narrow um, issues, um, and that creates problems for accessibility. So in any any given economics department you would often have one economist not really totally understanding what the other people are doing. Uh, One of my best friends uh, worked at a a uh, uh, very well-known well business school and, 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 and he's an economist. Uh, well, he's an econ- well, he got a job as an economist but he would always tell me he doesn't know any economics because he's a mathematician. But he got the job because he was a mathematician. He's doing mathematic modelling only. Uh, but he would tell me, well, he doesn't really know any economics but that's not a problem these days in some economics departments. Um, now, as I said already, there's the use and abuse of assumptions. I'm not saying that anybody who makes assumptions Uh, that's a ridiculous thing to do because obviously I think it's very important to try to simplify the world in order to understand what's going on in order to make predictions. But obviously you have to be very careful how you make the assumptions and how transparent you are about the assumptions. Again, economists engaging with public policy, the danger there is that you have a very carefully worded economic model and economic result (coughs) that says, for example, again going back to my uh, field, The question was, how many East Europeans are going to come to the UK after 2004? A very well-known economist, it was the Home Office commissioned, uh, a well-known economist in this country to do the work. He came back, said 14,000, 20,000, about 20,000 per year. But here are my 10 assumptions. So this result rests on these 10 assumptions. Now all over in the news you had 20,000 are going to come. Now we know that this has been out by a factor of five or six at least, many more came. he says, well, it's not my fault look at my assumptions. The key assumption that he made was that uh, in 2004, all European countries would open up the labor markets to East European migrants. In practice, only three countries did, Britain, Ireland, and Sweden. Yeah? So well, he, he couldn't have foreseen which countries would open up in the end. Now, in the press, of course, it was the failure of the economist uh, because he grossly underestimated numbers, and he was saying, well... It was based on this assumption. So assumptions are important, and transparency about assumptions are important. Use and abuse of e- econometrics that there's a lot of jokes about that. Um, um, the point being that um, um, uh, well, if you want to be cynical, that it is possible to achieve various different results depending on how you do the analysis. Um, so again, it's very important to, to take a critical approach. Uh, Of course, a lot have been written about how a lot of the discipline has taken a rather uncritical view of how markets operate, and I would argue that there has been relatively little room for analysis of institutions, including states, nation states, (coughs) how the nation states um, uh, regulate markets, politics, and history. And of course, uh, a a, a perennial problem is, in a way, if you're into the business of, of generating results that are based on assumptions and that a lot of careful work, uh, um, but a lot of pitfalls. I think at the end of the day, you've got to be, you've got to show some humility in presenting the results. Uh, again, humility is not something that uh, uh, um, uh, most economists are particularly known for. <laughs> um, anyway, so to to come to my couple of concluding slides. So what next? Well, um, I think, w- in my view, anyway, one important um, uh, way forward would be to try to to open up the discipline to insights from other subjects, in particular politics. I mean most issues in life, if you want to understand the real world, are uh, economic and political in nature. There might also be insights from sociology from other subjects. Um, So I would say if you want to understand how states and markets work, how much government regulation there should be of international financial markets, international trade, international labor flows, uh, you've got to look at both disciplines. However, as always, the danger of taking a multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach is that you, in a sense, fall between two stools in the sense you're not aware of what's going on within each of the disciplines. So I think by advocating an approach of political economy that is based on both economics and politics, it's very important to to get a good grounding in in both of these disciplines. And of course, that, that, that call for more analysis of political economy takes us back again to some of the classical theorists, um, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, who were studying economics, except they didn't call it economics, they called it <coughs> political economy. I mean, Many of the classical theorists focused exactly on the question of, w- of what should be the role of the state in organizing economic activity. So, so a very explicit connection between states and markets. Uh, now very briefly, we can um, discuss that further in the, in the Q&A. Um, I think it's fair to say that economics at the moment is, is, is a small um, uh, program at this department at, uh, at the moment, but it's, um, we, are, we are now in a position where we can expand it fairly rapidly. Uh, we've got uh, a series of online courses that give you the grounding in, in some of the main subjects, microeconomics, macroeconomics, Globalization. <coughs> uh, but there's also uh, a series of subjects that are much more explicitly focused on, on discussing economics within this framework of political economy. New economic powers, heterodox economic thought, uh, social entrepreneurship. Um, there's a, a, a bunch of courses uh, on the horizon uh, that we're uh, thinking about offering very soon. They're listed here. We've got weekly classes on topical economics, um, and we've got some day and weekend classes on economics of climate change. Now, one, you know, what we're also interested from from you in a sense is is you know, what kinds of issues would you like to see added to the list? Um, and we're looking forward to that so to conclude uh, I started with the Queen so I'll end with her uh, so remember I started by saying she went to the LSE in November 2008 and said well what's going on you all very smart people why didn't you predict it so did she get a reply the answer is yes, she did um, The uh, uh, you know, economic associ- one of the major economic associations in this country actually convened a meeting to, uh, you know, of a few uh, high profile economists and basically said well you know, what's our answer Now, they uh, produced a letter, a three-page letter, which again can be downloaded from the Internet. And uh, I've just uh, taken one paragraph from this letter. (coughs) So in summary, Your Majesty, the failure to foresee the timing, extent, and severity of the crisis and to head it off, while it had many causes, was principally a failure of the collective imagination of many bright people so still very bright, yes. uh, both in this country and internationally so not only us, um, to understand the risks to the system as a whole. So this was the main conclusion of that letter. Uh, well I hope that I have convinced you in this short presentation that the answer probably has to go beyond this response. So it's certainly more than a failure of the collective imagination. I mean. Uh, imagination and collective are not terms that appear very frequently in economics these days, but they probably should, should appear more often. And I think the way forward is to think much more explicitly and creatively about political economy questions. Thank you.